Thanks for listening to Boston University School of Medicine's Safer and Competent Opioid Prescribing Education, Scope of Pain podcast series. I'm Jessica Alpert, and this is episode four. If at any point you want more information on receiving credit for this course, visit our website, scopeofpain.org. There are also resources that accompany this series. All of it can be found at scopeofpain.org. In this episode, we're gonna spend more time on opioid choice and dosing, as well as monitoring. And joining us again is Dr. Daniel Alford. Welcome back. Thanks for having me. Dr. Alford is a professor of medicine at Boston University School of Medicine, as well as the director of the Clinical Addiction Research and Education Unit at Boston Medical Center. Okay, so let's start at the beginning. What do providers need to think about when choosing an opioid for a patient with chronic pain? Yeah, so as we discussed in episode three, there are really two main options. One are short-acting or immediate-release opioids, and then on the other side are the longer-acting extended-release opioids. And your decision is going to be based on the patient's pain. So is it intermittent, just happens certain times of the day with certain activities, or is it around-the-clock continuous? And that's going to help you make your decision about whether you're going to use just short-acting or a long-acting preparation. But it's also important to talk to the patient about what's their experience, Have they been tried on other opioids, and how did they work? And so I think that's an important piece. But also, does the patient have tolerance to opioids? So if they're opioid naive, you're not going to start an extended-release long-acting opioid because they don't have opioid tolerance and they could develop sedation. The other things to think about are route of administration. So is this someone who would be better off on a patch that they only need to put on every three days or every week? Or is this someone who's going to take a daily pill or multiple pills a day? And then finally, you want to think about their insurance coverage. Are they going to have this medication covered? or Because some of these preparations are very expensive. Obviously, access is key. In episode one, we learned about combination therapy for acute pain. Does that work also for chronic pain? Absolutely. Um, And there's actually a concept called rational polypharmacy. And in medical school, I was taught polypharmacy is bad because we want to minimize the amount of medications people are on. But when it comes to pain management polypharmacy is actually good. And I'll explain why I say that. But the issue is that there are multiple targets within the central and peripheral nervous system to diminish the pain signal. And so if we can target those different areas with different medications, we're better off. And so you can actually get synergistic effect by adding different medications. So can you give me an example of rational polypharmacy? Sure. So there are two main studies that I like to talk about. And Both of them looked at subjects with neuropathic pain, which is really hard to treat in general. The first study looked at morphine versus gabapentin versus the combination, morphine and gabapentin. And and what they found was that the combination did much better. More importantly, in my mind, is that with the combination therapy, you got better pain relief with lower doses of each medication. So you can actually get away with less medication and therefore fewer side effects. And this was repeated with another combination that was with nortriptyline and morphine. And again, they found better pain relief with combination therapy. I'd like to bring back our case patient, Kathy James. Can you give us a quick refresher? Sure. Remember, she's 40 years old. She has painful diabetic neuropathy and chronic hip pain. And she's been on immediate release oxycodone for several years, and she still has chronic pain. She has no history of opioid misuse. And remember, she's a smoker and she's overweight. 
So let's listen in on her appointment with Dr. Johnson. Okay, Ms. James. So here's what I suggest that we do moving forward. Since you have severe pain all day, and you've been tolerating the oxycodone four times per day, but you told me you've been experiencing pain right before your next dose, I'm gonna switch you to a long-acting version of the same medication. You'll only have to take this long-acting version twice per day. And the goal here is that the long-acting medication will stabilize your blood levels and should prevent that worsening of your pain right before the next dose. Does that make sense? I, I guess I don't really understand the switching and only two tablets a day. The four tablets were working. Sure. So with the short-acting medication, what happens is that it works pretty quickly after you take it and your pain improves, but then it starts to wear off and your pain gets worse again. With the longer-acting medication, our goal is to keep your pain at a reasonable level for a longer amount of time so that you don't have those ups and downs throughout the day. Okay. The other thing that I'm going to do is to decrease the overall daily dose of the medication. And I know that's scary, um, but let me explain. So again, with the steadier state dosing, the goal being that your pain remains at a reasonable level throughout the day, you may not need as high of a dose of the medication. In addition, I'm gonna increase your gabapentin dose because that's going to help the oxycodone work better. And I'm gonna refer you to physical therapy to help with the hip pain. Uh, I, I still don't understand how getting a lower dose of this medication is gonna help my pain. Dr. Robertson never recommended these changes. I hear you. I hope that you can trust that my goal is really to try to improve your pain and keep you safe at the same time. One thing that's important to know about the longer acting medication is that you should not break or crush the tablet because that could be very dangerous. So you have to swallow the tablet whole. Okay? Okay. okay. Also, because we know that opioids carry serious risks, I'm gonna walk you through our office policies around how we monitor all patients taking opioids for chronic pain. And again, the goal here is really to keep you safe. We have an agreement that we'll go over. It outlines my responsibilities and yours. And once we go through it, if you agree, we'll both sign it, and then I'll have the nurse out front get you that appointment with physical therapy. Oh, that is an awful lot of stuff to do for something that I don't, I'm really worried is not even gonna work. Can I ask what you're worried about? I just, I don't get it. I don't understand why you would wanna change it. It's, it's, it has been working and it's a lower dose. It just doesn't seem like it makes sense. I hear that. I would say it has been working to an extent, but you're reporting these spikes of pain right before your next dose. And so I think we can do better. I think we can get your pain, again, at a reasonable level throughout the day as opposed to these up and down swings. But we're working through this together and my goal is to really keep you safe and help manage your pain. So please let me know how this is going throughout the process. Okay, we'll give it a try. Okay. For a minute now, let's talk about smoking.
Okay, so that's what's next for Kathy James. Can you explain more about the monitoring that Dr. Johnson is putting into place? Yeah, before I get into the specifics of monitoring, I think the concept of universal precautions is worth mentioning. And that is assuming that everyone who's prescribed an opioid has at least some risk. We also know that predicting opioid misuse risk is imprecise. And when we apply our monitoring strategies universally, it reduces any patient feeling as if they're stigmatized, but it also standardizes the systems of care so that everyone is doing the exact same thing for every patient who's prescribed an opioid. And it's completely consistent with all of the national expert-related guidelines. So why don't we get into a little more detail? What is the first universal precaution? The universal precautions, and, and this is completely consistent with the CDC guideline, really includes having patients sign a patient-provider agreement and monitoring with urine drug testing, pill counts, and checking the prescription drug monitoring program so that we can ensure our patients are adherent and not misusing their opioid or diverting their opioid. Let me go back to the patient-provider agreement, and some people refer to them as contracts, but they're not legal documents. So I think agreements is a better term because it's really an educational document. And it includes two pieces, informed consent and the plan of care. And it should be reviewed and signed by both the provider and the patient. It should be reviewed regularly, maybe annually. And it really can serve as a patient counseling document because it really is educational. And first, there's informed consent. Yeah, so the informed consent actually has two parts. Um, the first one is setting realistic goals, and the other one is talking about potential risks so that the patient and you agree on what the ultimate goal is around this therapy, but also that the patient is fully aware of the potential risks. So let me just talk about goals for a minute because all too often patients say, well, I just want to feel better. And how would you measure that at the next visit? And you really can't. So I would suggest that we use SMART goals. And SMART stands for specific, measurable, action-oriented, realistic, and time-sensitive. So I would prefer for the patient to say, you know, I'd like to go to the store twice a week. And that involves walking two blocks. And that's really something that at the next visit you could ask, oh, how did it go? And were you able to do that? And why, why not? The potential risks are things that we've talked about, such as side effects, drug interactions, the risk of oversedation, especially when starting opioids or having your dose increased, and the risk of driving during that period, but also the risk of misuse and overdose and death, the risk for women of reproductive age, of neonatal abstinence syndrome, and finally, a risk that a lot of patients are not aware of, which is the risk of developing worsening pain or something called opioid-induced hyperalgesia, which we'll talk more about. And you mentioned plan of care. What's that? Yeah, so the plan of care is really the second chunk of the agreement, which is making sure your patient understands the importance of engaging in other recommended treatments, what the policies and procedures are for monitoring and refills, that they should take the medication exactly as prescribed, that they should store it safely. Oftentimes we talk about storing it in a lockbox, that they should dispose of it safely when they no longer need it, that they don't share it or sell it with others, that they don't use illegal drugs and things like that. But also we want permission from the patient to allow us to communicate with other providers who are caring for this patient. And then for women, again, because of the risk of neonatal abstinence syndrome, that you discuss birth control and periodic monitoring for pregnancy. So universal precautions, as you noted, also include monitoring for both benefit and harm. Can you describe what you look for during these office visits? Office visits are busy. 
We have a very short period of time. We're doing a lot of things. The patient has an agenda. We have an agenda. So we need to keep it simple. And the way to keep it simple is to think about the six A's. And the six A's are analgesia, activities, adverse effects, aberrant behaviors, affect, and adherence. And remember that both analgesia and activities will be covered when you do the PEG. Remember, pain, enjoyment of life, and general activity. I also, during that visit, though, will ask my patients, tell me how you're taking your medications, and um, tell me how you took them over the last 24 hours. And you get some really interesting information. Like what? Well, um, you know, that I take it all once instead of three times a day, or um, some days I don't take it at all, and so I have pills left over, and you didn't know that until the patient told you. So um, these are things that you can learn by just saying, tell me how you take your medication on an average day. And just a note for listeners, you can find a chart of the six A's at scopeofpain.org. Well, let's shift to some objective measures that you can use. Probably the one that's most well-known is urine drug testing. And I'll tell you, before I start talking about it, that I went to a two-day conference on urine drug testing. Two days, and I left more confused than I went in. And why is that? Because... Um, labs use different assays. They have different cutoffs on what's positive and what's negative. These medications metabolize into all kinds of crazy stuff. So there's some complexity to it. Why do we do it if it's so complex? And firstly, it gives us some objective information that the person is taking the medication that we're prescribing. Therefore, it's in their urine. But also that they're not taking something we're not prescribing, some illicit drug or some other medication. I'll tell you that we should always tell our patients that we're sending their urine for a urine drug test. Um, we never send them for a lab test without telling them. So it's nothing secret. We're not trying to do something behind their back. And sometimes I'll even say, so I'm going to send a urine today. Can you tell me what I'm going to find in it? And sometimes they'll even tell me about stuff that I'm not even testing for. So I think it's really important to be completely open about what you're doing and then getting back to them about what the results are because this is what you do with any testing. The other important thing is that when you get an unexpected result, what does it tell you? It tells you about one point in time. So if someone has cocaine in their urine, it doesn't mean they have a cocaine use disorder. It just means they used at least once. So keep that in mind as well. You've said that some people will disclose what they may have in their urine, but can some people beat the system? Yeah, so you're right. That dedicated deceivers can absolutely beat the system. And some people ask me, well, should we observe the urine collection? And the answer is no, absolutely not. So you know, although it's imperfect and some people would say, oh, if you're not observing it, you don't know that it's an actual sample or that it's from the patient. But really, that is pretty invasive of the patient's privacy. So I would not encourage observed urine collection. Okay. So you said that conference confused you more than ever. Is there a way to simplify what you learned? Um, urine screens are usually immunoassays and they're inexpensive and they can be done point of care, but they can give you false positives and false negatives. So if you get an unexpected result, you can verify it using something much more specific, gas chromatography, mass spectroscopy, or GCMS. And that's very specific. Certainly, it's more expensive. But what you need to know is when you start to get to that specificity, they're going to tell you what molecules are in the urine. In that case, you need to know about the metabolism. So if someone's on hydrocodone, for example, they could have hydromorphone in their urine. It doesn't mean they're taking hydromorphone. It just means that that's the metabolite. Same thing with oxycodone. It can convert into oxymorphone. Again, it's just the metabolite. So 
I would say probably the take-home message is you need to know someone in the lab who you can call. If you have some question about an unexpected finding or what the next test should be, know your lab toxicologist so you can ask questions. Okay, we've talked about urine testing. What about pill counts? Yeah, so pill counts are often not talked about and not done, but I find them incredibly helpful for the following reasons. So one, it can give you some element of indication about how is the person taking their medication? Are they taking it as prescribed? Do they have extra pills left over? Do they have too few pills? But also it's to try to minimize diversion, sharing pills, selling pills, and so forth. And what we've instituted, which I think is really helpful, is giving people a 28-day supply instead of a 30-day supply. The reason for that is if you give a 30-day supply and you keep refilling it every month, people will start to have pills left over. Or if they wait until their pills run out, you're going to have people running out on the weekend. But if it's every 28 days, it's exactly every four weeks. So if I fill it on a Tuesday morning, it's going to be due in four weeks on a Tuesday morning. And so that keeps things a little more organized. I always prescribe enough so that the patient will have pills left over when I see them at their visit. And I ask them to bring their pills in at every visit. So urine tests, pill counts. What about prescription drug monitoring programs? Yeah, so these are actually being mandated in lots of states. In fact, over 60% of states now mandate that prescribers look people up on the prescription drug monitoring program before they prescribe a controlled substance. And there are two main reasons for doing it. One is to give you information on harmful polypharmacy. That is, you know, what else is the patient taking that might interact? But also gives you information if the patient is seeing multiple prescribers, things you didn't know about. So that that's helpful. I will say that the PDMPs, or prescription drug monitoring programs, have been shown to change prescriber behavior, so a little more judicious prescribing. There was a systematic review, however, that didn't find any evidence that PDMP implementation either increases or decreases non-fatal or fatal overdoses, which is really the ultimate outcome that we're looking for. Does it decrease the amount of overdoses? And the answer is no. So how often should you do these? The answer is it depends. And it really is up to you and your practice to agree upon what you think the standard should be, and everyone should adhere to that. But I would say, you know, not everyone's at the same risk, so you could risk stratify people as low, moderate, and high, and then base your decision on how often you're going to do these things based on the person's risk. So if they're low risk, maybe you'll see them four times a year, and you'll do urine drug testing, pill counts, and check the prescription drug monitoring program two times a year. But if they're high risk, maybe you'll see them every couple of months, and you know, do those monitoring strategies six times a year. And, but it's important to understand what your state laws are. We know that some states mandate looking patients up on the prescription drug monitoring program. So if that's the case, then you got to do it. And you should do it every single time if that's what the law is. And I'll also say that the frequency of monitoring is going to be more frequent early on. So once you've started a medication or made a dose change, you're going to do it more frequent than once the patient is stable and you feel comfortable that they're taking it as prescribed. Or if there's some worrisome behavior, then you're going to increase the level of monitoring. Well, it sounds like you're tracking your patients pretty closely. Yeah. So that's um, some pushback that I get sometimes when I talk about this. And I think it's important for us to remember that we're clinicians. We went to school to become a health professional. We didn't go to school to become a police officer or a DEA agent or a judge. And so it's important for us not to fall into that role. And I will tell you that there are certainly times where I feel like, boy, I'd love to follow this patient around for the day and see what the heck they're doing with my prescription. And then I realize, no, that's not my job. That's not what I became a physician for. And so I really need to kind of think back to 
what's the risk-benefit framework? What's the risk-benefit ratio for this patient being on this medication? And is the medication working or not? And I'm judging the treatment. I'm not judging the patient. So how do you talk to your patients about doing all of this? It's become a whole lot easier now that we have this opioid crisis that pretty much everyone's aware of. So people understand that there's a risk out there. Although I have to say, patients don't usually think they have their own risk. Um, They just think about everyone else having risk. But, you know, you review the fact that they do have some risk, but also that there is a public or community health risk that we need to pay attention to as well because we don't want excess opioids sitting out there because we know people get access to them and run into problems. It's also important to discuss that it's your responsibility to care for them and to look for any signs um, that they're running into problems and managing the risk and harm. And then finally, discussing the agreements, pill counts, urine drug testing really as ways to protect the patient from the harms and keeping them safe while they're benefiting from this opioid prescription. So what's the bottom line here? Use a consistent approach, universal precautions, but apply it individually because we know that there's different levels of risk, that one patient's risk is not someone else's risk. Dr. Daniel Alford, thanks so much. Well, thank you. So, we've learned about monitoring patients, but this is a lot of work. Here to talk about how to get it all done is Kristen Wason, a nurse practitioner. Welcome, Kristen. Yeah, thank you for having me. Kristen has been working in the field of addiction medicine since 2009 and is a clinical educator for the Office-Based Addiction Treatment Program at Boston Medical Center and the Boston University School of Medicine. So, Kristen, let's start by talking about office systems. Where do we begin? Yeah, so these are complex patients that can take a lot of time and a lot of work, not just during your visits, but in between visits. And so in order to start doing this work, it is very helpful to have standardized policies that are really recognized and supported by clinicians throughout your practice. So having things like controlled substance treatment agreements that, you know, different members of your team sort of understand how they work and how to implement them, Um, making sure that these practices are therefore really applied in a way that's very fair and predictable and really work for all patients. In addition, it can be really helpful to also have a patient registry. Uh, These patient registries are able to be done pretty easily through an electronic medical record, which at this point most practices have switched to. And what these patient registries do is they make it so that there's sort of a patient list that practice managers can review and really track office-wide adherence to those guidelines that you've set up and to those treatment programs that you've set up um, and that have been really agreed upon by your colleagues. Speaking of colleagues, how do you make sure that the system is implemented across the office? Yeah, it's really important to try to involve as many care team members as you can, I think, in supporting our patients. You know, so you want to make sure that you're working with your nurses, your medical assistants, the pharmacists, and behavioral health clinicians to help support the safe um, prescribing of opioids and, and other really controlled substances or substance with misuse potential. And these staff are going to need to be trained, and I think we need to recognize that. Really, historically, we haven't done a lot of good pain education and definitely not a lot of good education around how to assess and manage substance use disorders. And so your nurses and your medical assistants and your pharmacists and behavioral health clinicians, they're all going to need to have some level of training about how we can monitor and support these patients throughout their care. Okay, let's go back to the individual provider. We talked about documentation. And 
all of this seems really time consuming. How do you do this in a busy practice? Documenting, I think, in general is hard to do when you're in a busy clinical practice because we want to spend our time caring for patients and not charting all the time. But documenting is important because it keeps the patient safe and it helps to keep you know, prescribers safe um, to really sort of back up the work that we're doing. A good way to do this is to try to streamline your documentation. If you can work in your electronic medical record and make things like smart phrases or quick text, and then that way you're documenting in a way that is really sort of standard during your visits, it, it can be very helpful. And some things that you want to make sure that you are documenting are things like the subjective reports from the patient as well as their family and any other you know, support persons that are involved in their life. And it's always important to make sure that we're circling back to those six A's that had been previously mentioned. So talking about analgesia or their pain relief, talking about the activities or how well they're functioning in their daily life, talking about any adverse effects or events that may have happened since your last visit, talking about any aberrant behaviors or sort of deviations from your treatment plan that you had with the patient, talking about the patient's affect and mood, and talking about adherence. Um, and doing all of this in a way that's really very robust is going to help make your decision-making clearer, which in time can actually save you time. So what else should providers be thinking about in terms of documentation? So in addition to the subjective information and talking about those six A's, you always want to try to make sure that you're collecting and documenting some objective data as well. So you want to ensure that you're having a standarders way to collect urine toxicology and then to document those urine drug screen results. If you're doing any medication counts, you want to document the results of those visits. You also want to be checking your prescription drug monitoring program in line with your state um, guidelines and make sure that you're really documenting that during your visits as well. And then finally, you're going to just be reviewing all of the subjective and objective data and make sure you give your clinical impression because you want to make it so that not only you can go back and sort of see how things are going with your patient and you know, where to sort of start off your next visit, but also so that if anyone else has to come in and care for your patient, that they're really able to see clearly and succinctly what's been done and, and how well this treatment plan is working. So is there anything else providers should keep in mind? I would say someone else that can be involved in the care of this patient is really your community resources. And I think that we don't want to forget our community partners and local partners for our patients. So having a list of pain clinics and how to refer their patients to their care if it's needed, having a list of mental health providers and working with those clinicians outside of your institution, as well as any substance use disorder treatment services that are in your community. These are all great places to keep in contact with and know how to do warm handoffs if needed so that if the patient did need a little bit more intensity in their treatment, then you're able to collaborate with these outside providers as well. Kristen Wason, thanks so much. Yeah, thanks for having me. Next time, we check in again on our patient, Kathy James. It's been 11 months, and she was doing fine. But then she showed up at the emergency room requesting an early refill. More on that in Episode 5. Scope of Pain was developed in collaboration with our national partners, the Council of Medical Specialty Societies, and the Federation of State Medical Boards. This educational activity is supported by an independent educational grant from the Opioid Analgesic Risk Evaluation and Mitigation Strategy, or REMS program companies. Production by Rococo Punch. 
To follow up on any of the material you heard today, please visit our website, scopeofpain.org, for visuals and other relevant materials. To receive credit, you'll need to listen to all six episodes, and then go to www.scopeofpain.org to complete a post-test and evaluation. I'm Jessica Alpert. Thanks for listening.